When my mother died, she died in Boise, Idaho, in a trailer park with my father where she lived. And um, she moved back there to be near her grandkids. And when she died, my father, he told me later he was secretly relieved because she was mentally ill. And she took her life, pills, booze, the whole thing. And so when I went back there, there was a box in the corner of the garage that he said, I can't look at this box. I refuse. So, of course, I, <laughs> I ran to it. And I went to look at this box. And I opened it up. And inside were many things of my mother's. And uh, one was her secret diaries, which I talk about. And there was a videotape that said Mike Young. So I went and took this VHS tape, old school tape, and I put it inside this machine. And I watched, and it was me as a baby with my mother. And I was inordinately interested in seeing this because I had found out many years ago that I was diagnosed as a child with something called failure to thrive. What it said on the paperwork from... Edmonds Hospital, Edmonds, Washington, where I was born and raised, was um, I didn't want to touch, be touched. I didn't want to be held. I didn't want to eat. I didn't want to live for the first six months of my life. You know, I was born in the 70s in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, from a father who was fresh off the boat from Hong Kong and a mother who's a 5'11", Norwegian, blonde, curly-haired, hazel-eyed woman. And... Uh, you know, my dad looks stereotypical Asian, but he was five, 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 six. So you can just imagine Oklahoma in the 70s, these two walking around and what that might have looked like. And then they had me. My mother was, she dropped out of high school. My father put her through college to go through nursing. I don't think that's anything that she really wanted to do. She was young. She was 20. So she had no idea how to take care of her own life, let alone a little one. And uh, my father was very much the immigrant story. He landed here with $50 in his pocket and, you know, survive in the U.S. So he learned all of these survival skills while he was here. So there's two very different personalities meshed together in Oklahoma. And the very first thing that I remember was how different I was. Everybody walks around with blonde, permed hair. They all have blue eyes, or at least most of them. And I remember walking around with my mother, and people would always stop us and say, wow, where did you adopt her from? And so it was always a feeling of being on the outside, even inside my house. Hi. I'm Michael C. Bryan. And I'm Jennifer Ho. We help people understand the purpose of their pain. We've been through a lot, and we've come out the other side. We talk about everything and anything. Especially what other people are afraid to talk about. Life is an invitation to do whatever the fuck you want. And it's definitely time to look at how we're playing the game. We held ourselves back for years. But now we're mostly past all of that shit. Mostly. Welcome, Welcome to, to Stripped. Stripped. And then I watched my mother try to engage with me. And she didn't know what to do with me. She, she was reaching out to me, touching me. She, was, she, she didn't know what to do. And I could tell that I, as a child, was just wanting her to, to love me, to, to do something with my little body. But she, I could tell she didn't know what she was doing. So what I was told later was that at six months, it was like a light went off and I decided to live. So it's hard to describe now at this point that I'm at, nearly 55, how I feel more equilibrium than I've ever have, but there were so many years where I felt like all of the world is on the other side of this 
plate of glass and I was on this side and I couldn't get over there to be where the normal people were. I felt separated from everyone, disconnected. And no matter what I did, I couldn't get it together, no matter how hard I tried. And I had a therapist once, he was in Boston and he was very gay. And he smelled like someone had put him through that, what I call the gauntlet at Macy's with a perfume counter for men. Like he had gone through 30 of those, right? Just it was drenched. And he was always kind of bored with me because I don't think I entertained him enough. And I always feel like I need to entertain my shrinks because I'm an entertainer. And then I made mention failure to thrive. I remember he, like a, like a cobra, he looked up, he went, what'd you say? Failure to thrive. And he's like, okay, you know how you told me you were a prostitute as a child? And now you're telling me that you had failure to thrive. Do you realize what that did to you as a child? That in utero, you were born to a mother who was mentally ill, that in utero, you had everything stacked against you. I think your entire life, frankly, is going to be about choosing to live every single day. I think this is going to be a thing for you your entire life. And I thought, no, 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 no. This isn't, this isn't the case. This, this can't be true. What I've come to realize is the reason that I think I have whatever gifts I have helping people with stuff is to this day, every single day when I wake up, I have to choose to keep going. I spent the good part of my elementary school years trying to fit in, like terribly trying to fit in. I always wanted express clothes because that's what the cool girls had at the time. I wanted to dye my hair, but that was never going to happen. And then I found out what the word ho means, and my last name is ho. And I didn't find that out until later. And then there was something else for people to make fun of me for. So not only did I look different, and I used to get the, the kids that would pull the corner of their eyes and do the Asian eyes and make fun of and bully, but then I had the last name Ho on top of it. So my childhood was rough because I never felt like I fit in. I was embarrassed to go out with my father because they would always look at him different. So you were, you were aware of that? Like you were aware that you didn't fit in? Oh, 100%. A hundred percent. It was, it's not hard. It, it was like Sesame Street. One of these things don't belong. And I remember watching that in kindergarten and looking around and seeing all my classmates that were white, middle of the country. And then there I was with long, dark hair. And to top it off, I had a blonde streak on the back of my head that actually made me look like a skunk. Some people are born with a birthmark on their scalp and they get different colored hair. So there was everything playing against me, and this is air quotes, but against me at the time that I felt that I, I had a long way to, to fit in. But I learned at a very young age, probably around fourth grade, I was never going to. There was no way I was going to have blonde hair. You know, my last name is whatever it is. Um, and I, I gave up the idea of trying to fit in, which sent me on a complete different journey of discovering who I was at a very young age and really playing different roles at different times to figure it out. But my parents used to fight a lot also. And so I never knew what I was kind of walking into the house on. I didn't know if my mother was angry at my dad or if my dad had a shitty day. My, my mother was very much a martyr so and a narcissist. So she would say things in front of other people that were just loving and sweet. And as soon as the door closed, it was like a veil just came over her and it would shift into, well, kind of, a, I didn't really mean what I just said there. So I never knew where she was and I never knew what I walked into the house with. So I really needed to learn how to quickly map everybody around me 
Where are they at emotionally? How can I protect myself from them? And we talked about traumatic mind mapping uh, before where we said, you know, when you deal with some trauma in your life, sometimes you really need to learn to quickly figure out what you're walking into so that you can protect yourself. My shrink now says to me, your mother is trying to grab your feet and pull you under every single day. you got to kick her feet away. you got to kick her in the face. And I thought, that's awfully violent. He's like, no, you have to do that. You have to get her off your back every day. And it's hard to explain this, but the fact that I kept focusing as a child on the fact that I, the failure to thrive meant that for the first six months I didn't want to live. And then something happened where I chose. So what I try to spend my life doing now, and it's not always easy, frankly, is that moment where I imagine as a baby, I had a choice of either dying or living, that I'm trying to live in that gap, right? But I would lie if I said I don't have someone right now who's with me in my life. He said to me, he's like, where are you now? Do you feel you're thriving? And compared to where I used to be, yes. And I have this weird drive now to succeed, right? I have this terror that I'm going to die and not achieve big things in my life. But then I think if I'm really honest when I'm still, maybe just the fact that I am here still after what I was born into, maybe that is enough. And that's hard because I understand the other side very well. It's literally every single day when I wake up, I have to say I'm choosing to live. I'm choosing to keep going. So when I meet people who are depressed or people who are having a hard time, I had that in me from the very beginning. It's in my genes. And a mother who killed herself, remember I shrink once said to me, he's like, you know, there's never a support group for kids of parents who kill themselves. I don't know where it's at. I wish there were. So to this day, knowing that from the very beginning, I was challenged to choose to live every day. I think one of the reasons I'm here is to accept that responsibility. It's my choice to live every day. And that there's always this thing in me that is the shadow side of me that's larger than maybe some people are aware of. I have a very keen sense of the shadow, which is why <laughs> as a child, kids were reading Spider-Man. And I was reading, you know, Sophie's Choice. <laughs> I was like, be great musical. And uh, ordinary people, you know. I, I gravitated towards very heavy things as a child. Yet at the same time, I was incredibly buoyant, optimistic, imagined myself in a musical constantly, yet didn't stop looking at the scene where Meryl Streep had to choose. So there it is again, right? That scene in the book and in the movie that everyone talks about where she has to choose which child is going to die and which child is going to live. That scene haunted me for years. I never knew why. Everybody talks about it because Meryl Streep was so amazing at it. But I think it's because that choice has haunted me my whole life that we have to choose and respect that genetically where we came from sometimes it feels like it's fighting against that within me. There was a lot of abuse in the family. My parents used to hit each other and screaming at each other. And my father brought home his mistress one time, and we were all, all hanging out at the table. Like, there were just crazy stories like that. But, um, yeah, it really informed me on 
protecting myself and creating the mosaic that I am now. So you had, you had a conscious decision to, to, to just not care what people thought and just be yourself? It wasn't a conscious decision. It was more like I am fighting a battle here mm -hmm. that I will never win. So then how do I get to use what I have? See, it's funny because I hear that. I kind of envy that because my mother was a big victim, and so I was a victim for a long time. So the apathetic sort of non-doingness thing, the sort of hiding away in the corner, the underdog thing, mm -hmm. I, I had the opposite, you know, which influenced me my whole life. You know, it was a hard time to get out from underneath that bitter victim thing. So I know that a lot of people dislike that intensely, you know, stop being a victim. I, I understand being a victim. I understand that. And I found that was hard to get out from under. I respect that, that you did that, because I wished I'd have done that, frankly. You know, shoulda, woulda, coulda. But that wasn't me. I was just like, oh, crap, you know. I don't, I don't know. I just hide. I would hide away. It was just too much. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And I wonder if it's because everywhere I turned, I was just up against it. I mean, I had nowhere to hide. Yeah, it was great. I mean, it was great. It was a way to function through the trauma. So good for you. Yeah. Yeah, but I didn't have that response. Yeah. Well, everything works for us and everything doesn't, right? <laughs> it is what it is at this point. It's like it's taken years to get to this framework that there's a benefit for all this. There's a reason. Mm -hmm. When you talk about discerning where people are at so you know how to behave, like so we're talking to like we're the origin of who we are now, right? Mm -hmm. I think part of the reason I'm really good with people is one thing, it's something I don't understand but I always had to sort of gauge where my mother was before she would attack me or she'd do something. So I always had to find it and then I would be very funny and self-deprecating and humorous and perform and that would knock her off her thing and make her laugh because, you know, she always wanted to perform. She always wanted to be an artist but never, you know, she was a nurse like your mother. So she was good at helping other people but so I would always kind of see where she's at and I could tell right away. So I was very good and still am. Very good at knowing what someone's really feeling. And I have this old school thing in me that's like, you know, am, are they pleased with me? Do they like me? You know, uh, am I pleasing them? What are they really thinking? You know, there's a little bit of that still left. That's hard for me to get rid of. And Absolutely. And it's still inside of me. So when I don't please some people now, and I find that the more I'm me in relationships, when people are in relationships, I find one person loves me and thinks I'm, you know, fabulous, whatever. The other person thinks I'm too much, loud, arrogant, should hold it down a little. And I find that when I'm myself, I, I, for some reason, I want that other person to kind of like me a little. And it's nice that as I'm, I'm moving along here, I'm like, yeah, well, I'm not their cup of tea. Right, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that either. I mean, I, my father, I remember in second grade, so my father is traditionally Chinese, and, and he his main focus was school, 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 school. And I always wanted to make him proud. And when I would come home from school, he would order books from China. And we would study for another hour math out of these books. So I knew algebra by second grade. And by second grade, I was put into a program for kids that were, quote, unquote, higher IQ or geniuses, right? So I went to another school. So I was like, yes, I'm doing it. I'm making my dad proud. This is amazing. But I also remember coming home in second grade with a, a test score that was 100. And he said to me, how come you didn't get 105? And so that sparked off a whole conversation that really just guided my entire life. It still shows up to this day where I'm not good enough. Even at my best, I'm not good enough. I love how you say it's a choice every day for you. And I feel like there's a choice every day for a lot of us. I know that it's a choice for me every day as well, even though I never had failure to thrive. At what age did you find out that you were born with failure to thrive? 
not until my 20s, and I couldn't understand what was wrong with me. It's, it's hard to express this, but as a, as a kid and as an adolescent, as a teen, I didn't know how to, I said this constantly, and everyone thought I was an idiot for saying it until a therapist once time said, that's kind of ingenious. I never knew how to be. I didn't know how to be. I, I kept taking everything people said personally. I didn't ha know how to have a friendship. I, I felt odd emotionally. I was always off, always off, too emotional, too something. I could never find my footing anywhere. I could never find it. And it was because, you know, I think from the start, I was challenged with this thing that's a real thing. And, and when I found out about that in my 20s, it kind of relaxed me a little and put into perspective, you know, it's a, it's a lot, but... I was kicked out as a as an adolescent for being gay, and then I was a prostitute as a kid, and and I was homeless, and I, it's like that was like someone else's life. I can't even believe that I'm saying this. And someone sometimes, I was homeless. I was a homeless teen. But it sounds like you actually teetered on both sides, right? So if if that middle line is the choice that you made, that gap that you spoke about, and then you've kind of got this right side where it's choosing to live, but you also have this kind of like demon on your back with the failure to thrive also or, or not wanting to really be around. It wouldn't be surprising to me that those were some of the choices that you made wanting to kind of knock out at those moments and say, you know what, I'm, I'm done with life at this moment. I really don't give a shit what happens. Right. And so this is where it comes in. And you just bring your back yourself back to that gap to make a different choice. So it, it's, beautifully, it's beautifully said in the way that you're doing that. And I see how every morning or every day you make that choice. That's why I'm wacko about my morning routine. Yeah. You know, I, I say to people, um, even today my therapist says, you know, your mother's still on your back. But mm -hmm. now... There's only two of her claws stuck in my back. See, when I talk about this about my mother, I know that some people are, how could you talk about your mother like that? I don't know how else to describe her besides a harpy. Even mm -hmm. though I know she did the best she could, mm -hmm. she was a beautiful monster, as I always say. You know, So to this day now, I've got most of her off me, but I'm still kind of flicking off those last two remnants. And those last two remnants are things like the self-defeatist thing, the thing where I, I, can, I can fuck up. Like I can do something where I say something or it, there's this thing with my mother. She's just, she never felt that I was good enough. She never felt that I could please her enough. She was a narcissist. So she was always like, you know, and I said this again to someone who I work with now and to explain to someone what it's like as a child when you don't think, you just feel, to open your heart to the one figure that's supposed to teach you about loving yourself and others. And when it's like for them to say, I love you, then you open your heart then they, it literally feels like they take a dagger and stab you again and again. And then they're like, love me now. And then you feel you're the one that caused them, you did something for them to stab you. I know this sounds dramatic, but this is how I feel. And I finally come to this point. It's like my heart has all these little scars in it now. We take on these stories and we run with them for, their, for our entire lives. Even now, I have to fight against that story. It's helped me in a lot of ways. I'm a go-getter. I've created an amazing business. I also help other people. I'm part of a board for, for women who are suffering from abusive exes, all that stuff. So it's worked for me. On the flip side, it hasn't worked for me because it also creates panic attacks, anxiety, depression, um, not knowing when to say no or to stop. How does it create it? Because I don't know when to stop. Right? I'm always going, I, I found that I'm driving for something that is invisible. Are you aware of that, though? Because in this work that we talk about, you know, and I know for me, meditation and 
whatever spirituality means, that word, you know, awareness of myself, awareness of where my intention's going. That's been a lot of my saving grace. Do you find that to be true? Not all the time. So my automatic is that drive. That is my automatic. What's is, your drive? My drive is to get that 105, okay. right? That's my automatic, right. right? I typically don't notice it until I start feeling some physical reactions, anxiety pulling up, and I, and I need to stop myself and say, okay, where are you operating from? Are you coming from a place where this is helping you, or are you listening to that old narrative yeah. of getting the 105? Yeah. And is that working for you right now? And so I need to stop sometimes and say, hey, sometimes I don't stop until I'm full-blown panic attack like I was a couple of weeks so, ago. So why don't you stop when you feel that? I call it the tickle. You feel a tickle coming, you know, like, here it comes. And you know, here we go. If I don't stop this train, it's going to fucking, that locomotive is going to take off. If you're aware of the tickle, why do you think you don't then implement what you know is going to work to help that slow down? So that is a piece that I am still implementing. I think we implement until we freaking die. <laughs> we do. <laughs> we do. And that's really it. Sometimes I'll feel the tickle because I'm being present to myself. Mm -hmm. The thing is, I've also realized that that is part of the self-care that I've been ignoring a lot of. It's really, and that's part of people-pleasing too. Whenever you're running for that 105, you're really looking to please everybody else except for yourself. And so self-care has been a practice of mine to notice the tickle and say, okay, where am I at? I know that these deliverables need to go out or this is what I want to show somebody else about how great I am at doing this or whatever it might be. But is this really helping me? Because you know, it's funny too. I think when you think about that, you, ask, you know, deliver people. I don't think people are nearly as remotely interested in us as we think they are. No. And, I think uh, they're well, so right? consumed in their whole friggin' life. They don't <laughs> give a shit. They really don't. I mean, we, we have this idea that we can possibly have a psychic ability <laughs> to understand how people think about us and what they're doing. Right. Usually the reality is, first of all, they're not aware of the reality. And second of all, it's nothing near what we in our minds are thinking about. It's never the case. Most people could give a crap about right. us. They really don't care because they're thinking about themselves. It's not that they don't care, but they're involved in their own life. Uh, absolutely. So and it's creating not all, all about me. And it's <laughs> rarely hardly ever about you from their perspective. They're right. just thinking about them. Absolutely. People are very self-absorbed, and I don't think it's necessarily bad. I think it's the truth. Absolutely. And, they're and concerned so, about themselves, not you. I actually had that. That I was walking off. I'm, I'm feeling pretty cute today because I got this brand new outfit, and I just think I'm the cutest yeah, this just, morning, so right? Yeah, everybody who's listening to this, she's <laughs> not cute. She's slamming hot. <laughs> so I got off the train, and I'm like, I'm feeling myself. Right? I'm strutting. I'm feeling really you good. You should in that outfit. And I caught myself in, not even myself, but I caught the reflection of the people in my area in the window. Mm. And I said, nobody is looking. That's true. But not in a bad way, in a way where I'm like, nobody is really looking. Where else am I thinking people are looking and they're not really looking? Hence my panic attacks, right? Yeah, I feel like everybody is looking at me and everybody is watching everything I do. But maybe they're really not. And so it was really an opportunity for me to say, nobody's looking at me. Nobody's paying attention to me. It's not all about me. Mm -hmm. And what about me taking care of myself? Well, that's why the experience in life becomes doing it for yourself. It's like someone once said to me, you're playing to an audience with their back turned. Yeah, I, I love was, it. I was like, <laughs> that's I was like, what the fuck? I was like, wait a minute. So basically it frees you up to do whatever the fuck you want. And what's fascinating is when we don't think about how we're being perceived and we just are. You know, I, I've been inordinately interested, and this has been a thing that's helped me a lot 
is what is the experience of, of being? I talk about this a lot and I really want to understand consciousness. I didn't know what the fuck anyone was talking about. Deepak and Eckert when they were saying all this, right? I was like, what dudes, like what, what? I don't know what you're saying. But I, I'm starting to understand this state of beingness. And in that state of beingness, all the narratives do drop, right? And I, and I think it's a lovely thing. So, you know, we were talking about how do we find our foundation now? Meditation has been a huge thing, a saving grace for me that I fought for decades. And to this day, when I ask people to meditate, they fight me tooth and nail. It is the one thing they won't, they just refuse to sit for 10 minutes. They refuse until they give it like 20, 30 days. And then when they start to find an emotional state that feels better, things start to shift for them. So going back to your mother and that the idea of flicking her off. So my question to you would be, do you really think that... Electric cattle prods, more like it. <laughs> <laughs> but do you ever think that there's actually a moment where, or a time where that will no longer be part of the conversation because, you know, I've found that whatever stories I subscribed to growing up and things that my my parents did or or any of that, I, that, that still is my automatic place, is to feel the less than or not good enough. And so it's the struggle for me to counteract that conversation in my head. And so do you ever think that's ever not going to be part of the conversation? Okay, can I be honest? Tell a new story. Tell a new narrative. Right. I, I've studied this shit for years, and this is why in spirituality— there's a slight bit of admonishment and shaming from some of these spiritual teachers and, and psychologists, psychiatrists that say, the past is over. You're in the present. The past has no effect. And I'm like, you know, you may say that, but I got to I gotta be honest with you. As someone who was abused as a kid, it's a great idea. I just don't think the experience is that simple. I really don't. So has it lessened incredibly in my life? Yes. Is it always going to be there? I got to be honest with you. When people say to me, Am I always going to be struggling with this? I said, you know, I got to be honest with you. To some degree, I think you will. But the framework, the perspective, that's the only reason I can keep going and I help other people understand is there's got to be a benefit. I strictly believe in acknowledging what's coming up for you in that given moment. So if, you, mm. if you're hearing the common narrative of your mother in your head mm -hmm. in the event, right, you can counteract that, but you have to acknowledge it first. You can't just say, okay, I'm going to skip that conversation and say I'm just going to be present I can't right help but now. acknowledge it because it's an emotion. It's a feeling of a— of a, of a f You can't, but some people will try to bury that by saying, let's just skip over that and be present now and not take a look or acknowledge that that was the feeling I was having at that moment. That's right. It's Because so, it's too much. Because what we're talking about here is most people, they can't. Yet that's the very thing that's holding them— at bay. So I think the reason I've gotten ahead is because I can feel it, accept feeling it, but don't fight it. It's the analogy that I always use. It's like, imagine you're on a fishing boat and you're in a storm, which is what it feels like, and you fall over the side and you get caught up in a net. Now, if you fight the net, what's going to happen? You're just going to sink. Well, the net's going to tighten, right? right? It's like the emotion. But if you just surrender... And don't fight the emotion. What happens to the net, which is the emotion, that's the metaphor. What happens to the net? It loosens up. That's right. Yeah. That's and right. You get a chance to release it. But the deeper discussion, longer, of course, is our physical bodies, and we've talked about this, have a connection to the original trauma. So 
physiologically, our physical bodies are going to fight, right? It's it's what our bodies is prepared to do, which is why, you know, I've had anxiety, depression, all these things for years and mostly at the other side of that stuff. But there's a there's a physical component to this when you've gone through significant trauma that makes it not so much as, oh, just tell a new story and decide to act differently. Your body is telling you something else. So it's acknowledging, I think for me at least, you know. Yeah, absolutely acknowledging. And I want to go back to the can't portion where you said they, they can't, it's too painful for them, so they can't. I actually want to switch that around. My belief is that they won't, right? So can't and won't are two completely different words. Can't is really they are not in my way of thinking. Can't is really, you know, you can't run because you don't have legs. Like, that's a can't. But if your legs are fatigued, you won't run because your legs are fatigued, right? So it's kind of the same way whenever it comes with the emotional traumas that pop up or those automatics that we live in. Instead of thinking, I can't look at this, I won't look at this feels very different to me as if I am pushing it off and I'm unwilling to, but I could, right? And that's really sometimes the hardest part is diving in to the fire to put it out. But what I, what I would say to that, can't and won't, I have to layer in the feeling of compassion to this. When you say won't, it's a little resistant to me, it feels like. Whereas can't is like, I mean, because I struggled for so long, it's just, it's just, it's so hard for people. So when I say can't, it's terrifying to people. It is terrifying if you are physically, sexually, or emotionally abused as a child to go to that place because there's no framework for you to say, when I go there, I'm going to heal. It's just, so, so we talked about earlier before the podcast, right? Janina Fisher was someone that my sister introduced me to years ago who taught you that as an adult, you revisit the fractured sense of the self, the child, and then you engage with your younger self as the adult so you're in charge. So you don't re-traumatize yourself because you can easily re-traumatize, right? Mm -hmm. So when I got that, then I thought, oh, I can go back to that original trauma, engage with that little kid, that little Mike, you know? But I'm doing it as the adult, so I'm in charge, so I feel empowered. It, it's, a, it's a step removed so you don't go back into those emotions. But the emotions of terror, something that no one talks about is freezing. A lot of people freeze. My sister and I talk, she freezes. She can't. You know, my sister can't remember her childhood. And I've written books, directed movies, talk about it. She can't remember it mm -hmm. because it's too much. She cannot go there. So she's compartmentalized her emotional life. Whereas I, <laughs> I could probably sometimes use to compartmentalize <laughs> a little bit more. So, but it's it's complex because the emotions are so all-encompassing and so big. And as a child, you don't you don't have a framework. You just feel. Oh, absolutely, a hundred percent. Saying saying won't doesn't diminish the pain or the difficulty behind it. You know, the oscillating emotion, the feeling that you don't have control over your emotions, that was a big thing for me for a number of years. And now I feel, I know when emotionally I'm ragged, I understand what I call now, I kind of throttle my energy a little bit. I, I sort of calibrate where I'm giving too much of myself away. And I feel uh, the tickle begin. And when the tickle begins of depletion, then I know that 
if it's really me pushing myself beyond that depletion that I don't really trust really fully and why would I with the mother that I had that it's going to be okay. Mm -hmm. So there it is. Okay. So then what do I do then? And then I, if there's someone that I want to reach out to, then that is someone that can be there for me. Great. But also at the same time, meditation has taught me that horrible, stupid bumper sticker is true. The answers are all inside. But to say that to someone who doesn't feel that is annoying. They just mm -hmm. want to slap me. Mm -hmm. I don't blame them. I would too if I were in the mood they were in if I said that. But it's true. Yeah, absolutely. It's actually a true thing. It, it, it really is. It really is right there. But that that uh, that idea about playing to an audience with their back turned, I've never forgotten that. It, it completely changes the way that I mean. Listen, we take ourselves way too seriously. Everybody anyway. does. I mean, it's just everybody does. I, sometimes I say to myself, "Really, you need to pull the stick out of your ass because yeah. it's just not." Do or die. Nobody's going to be killed over this. It's, it's okay. And so that pulls it back. Meditation is amazing. And the one, the one piece that I had that I was really up against with meditation is, oh my God, that means I got to stop, do twenty minutes of closed eye with no noise. And I just had this story built up in my head of what meditation looked like, until I spoke to a meditation guru, and he says, no, you can do this, walking around. You can do this sitting on the train. Yeah. So it's possible yeah. to just feel that tickle and say, okay, let me take a deep breath, just close my eyes mm -hmm. and get centered, you know, whatever that may look like for somebody. Some people it's visual, some people it's, you know, saying the same mantra, whatever it might be, but it's so important to know that it can be done anywhere. It, you don't need to be 20 minutes in so a I, I black call it, room. I call it a meditative life. You can have a meditative life right. where you're in a meditative state. But I do say most of the people that I admire who – I think are genuine and authentic and don't get caught up in the verbiage of all this world, these worlds. Um, I hate verbiage. I hate uh, hashtag self-care. I just want to like, uh, I get it. I'm just right. so sick of it. We need new words, right? Mm -hmm. Morning time for me, I needed to find that emotional set point for the day mm. to have a, an emotional set point that I could connect to. And I did that for years. And so that helps. So if I skip now, then it's no big deal. But to have a reference point that I could return to, because after the childhoods that we've shared, you habituate to feeling bad. You think bad's normal. I remember one time when I wasn't, for some weird reason, in the middle of Bintown, in the middle of a panic attack, suddenly it stopped. And I remember feeling weird that I felt good. And I thought, oh, that's not good. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm mm -hmm. like, so I distrust calm. I had habituated to anxiety to such a degree that I thought that was normal. So it's like the thing that, you know, you know, Sid talked about this, but the idea that um, action is fantastic, I say this all the time, but we're in a society addicted to action, not it as a byproduct, as a natural, organic result of a state of being. Mm -hmm. And while I know we're on the precipice of this in society right now, it's still not something that resonates with very many people. Because all they think about is, where's the money? Where's the result? Absolutely. And it's part of that be, do, have, right? So a lot of people have the idea in order to have something, you have to do something to have that one thing, right? But there's a whole beingness behind it. In order for you to have that, like if you want a loving, beautiful, open, honest relationship, you get to be beautiful, open, loving, and honest yourself. Or just as... accept that you already are that. Right. So you don't have to do anything. You just have to be it. 
Right. But people don't trust that because, you know, we love our crushing or smashing or all that sort of stuff. So it's not that that stuff doesn't matter, but it's more like my favorite saying is, you're already everything you're trying so hard to be. Right. But if you're showing up and you're guarded at, for, for good, uh, you and know, for at a reason, date. For good reason. And I understand why you would be. You're going to get a guarded person sitting across from you. That And that's really, like, but, but what the, are you entering the, with? But the date's too late, though. And I always say this. It's before the date. Right. That's why meditation. That's why the work that we're talking about. The date's too late. The interview's too late. Getting on stage is too late. You're in it then. Mm-hmm. It's the before. Right? So... My big favorite Oprah-like sentence, which, you know, I really should trademark, but I always say this, that life is like a sentence, and the period is like this manifestation, right? But our life is the sentence. So then we get a manifestation, next sentence. But all of society is obsessed with the period, the manifestation. Social media, you're not going to get a thumbs up if you're talking about your process to get to the manifestation. All the people want to give you a thumbs up, hearts, and acknowledgement is the job, the money, the baby, the marriage, which is fabulous. Mm-hmm. But that's not what our lives is. Our life is the one blip of a manifestation, and then it's all the stuff in the middle. But society is obsessed with the manifestation. They don't really give credence to the very thing we're living, which is the middle, which is the sentence. And it's madness. But it's interesting also because when we hear origin stories, like last night I was watching Street Food on Netflix. Fantastic show. What is that? So I really thought they were just going to go around and talk to the street food vendors. And, That's what it sounds like. And exactly. So I put it on, and they start with this one woman who was in Thailand. And they showed her street card and kind of her shop and everything that she made, and it looked delicious, and it was amazing. She was 73 or so. But they went back to her backstory. And they talked about her origins and her mother and the the sewing machine shop burning down and then how she started off with one dish and she refined that for years and years and years. And then she worked her way all the way up and she's still a street food vendor, but she has a Michelin star. They asked her to actually receive a Michelin star. So to my point, that story, what had me jumping out of my seat, cheering for her, saying, holy shit, that is an amazing ride, was what I love. And I believe that people are craving that kind of connection of the journey that we're all on as opposed to that period. Although that is what everybody is posting are those babies and the marriages and all that happy job yeah, promotions likes, and everything, the loves, right? They go bonkers. It goes, it's great. But behind that, and this is what's so interesting about social media is because, yes, that's what it looks like. Mm-hmm. But you hear time and time again that people are looking for connection. They want those backstories. They want to know what's happening between, you know, that period and the very beginning of the sentence. They really do want to know. Well, that's like I joke about it, but I'm not joking. America's Got Talent. I, I have, I'm obsessed with that show because Simon Callow used to be callous, Callow, and he softened tremendously because really the whole show, if you watch it, the performances are spectacular, but that's not what the show is about. Everybody on that show has been through shit, mm-hmm. like shit. Mm-hmm. And what it takes for someone, to go back to failure to thrive with me, to get up day in and day out to do the work for that These people have spent 10, 15 years for three minutes on national television. What it takes to get up day in and day out to do the work that gets them in that three minutes is what life is about. 
Absolutely, a hundred percent. And it's how inspiring and is that? That it's, just—it's everything. Good. It's everything. Yeah, and that feels good, and that's what I mean. Do you see that we actually have like a visceral reaction to just we all do. Hear it. We, we hear all this. We all do. feel it in the room, and yeah. we all want that so badly. And we, so we, we want to hear someone speak to that to say, day in and day out, this is what matters. So I think that's what we're doing here. Mm. I'm stripped. Mm. What do you think, Michael? Oh, look at that! She just turned it right around to the to the branding. Yes, yeah. <laughs> no, it is. So stripped is like stripping away the facade that so many people by clear design for good reason are showing, but stripping that away to say, we're all in this together. We're all doing the same thing. We're all moving towards this thing. Manifestations matter, but it's that day in and day out, stripping away all the pretense that that's not what it takes because that is life. And more to what you were saying before, it's it's not all about that period. We're we're really going to be talking in full on sentences here, and so I really love that we got to to talk about this. You know, just so everybody knows, I didn't know about Michael's history, and we're kind of discovering each other as we go along. So, what you've just heard is uh, you've heard it for the first time, and so have I. And so I just I I'm really grateful. It's soon going to be failure to thrive the musical. (laughs) <laughs> lots of zippy numbers. <laughs> hey, so we know there was a lot of information in this last episode. So if you'd like to reach out to us, we're at stripthepodcast at gmail.com. And if you'd like to leave us a voicemail about what's going on in your life, 201-685-0828. 